things. God says, for example, in 2 John, that if, if a false teacher is, is coming into your area, not even to receive such a person into your home or extend any kind of greeting to them. Now that's strong, isn't it? Not even to greet them, not even to allow them to come into your home. So be hospitable to unbelievers, be gentle and respectful, but when it comes to a false teacher, don't do anything that would give the appearance of endorsing what they have to say. Why? Because it's arguably more dangerous to be a little wrong than to be way off. You know not to trust the broken clock, but the clock that's just a little bit off can get you into big trouble. There are some, in a similar way, who call themselves Christians. They use the Bible. They say things that sound close enough to the truth that they deceive people into taking the broad path while convincing them that they're following the narrow way. Here in the second chapter of this letter, Peter is going to spend the whole chapter warning us extensively about the dangers of false teaching. And our focus this morning is going to be just on the first three verses of this chapter, but I want us to back up and pick up the last few verses of chapter 1 so that we can get some context and see what it is in Peter's mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that leads him to say this now. So look back with me at chapter 1, verse 19, and that's where we'll begin this morning. So first Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, um, we have a hard word in front of us this morning, but I pray that you would help us, as we just sang a moment ago, uh, to be as the psalmist was when he wrote, As the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs after you, pants for you, O Lord. Because you, within you, are streams of living water. And so, Lord, I pray that you would... Uh, work through your word this morning and the result would be that we would not turn aside to broken cisterns that cannot hold water, but that we would turn to you, the one who is the fountain of living water, that we would come to you as Jesus invited the Samaritan woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water I have to give them will never thirst again. So Lord, help us not to, not to lust after the poison of false teaching that dries up and leaves us constantly thirsty and that leads ultimately to hell. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would turn our appetites toward the fountain of living water. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, in his first letter, Peter referred to New Testament believers as exiles. 
And he was picking up on a theme from the Old Testament in which God's people had been um, scattered among the nations. God had warned them through Moses, if you go on sinning, even though I'm going to put you into the promised land, I will scatter you among the nations. And that happened. But then something incredible happened. God did not, even though they had been removed from the place where God had put them, even though they had been removed from the presence of God in the temple, they had not been removed from the presence of God. He was with them even in exile. And the way that He demonstrated that to them was that He sent genuine prophets to them. As if to say, you don't have to be in the temple to hear my voice. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to hear my word. My word is not bound to a a building. It's not bound to a city. It's not bound to a country. It goes wherever I send it, and it never returns void. But even though God sent genuine prophets to the people, there were also false prophets that arose, and God warned them that this would happen, and indeed it did. And in a similar way, New Testament followers of Christ are scattered in the world as exiles. And just as the Old Testament had, the Old Testament exiles had the Word of God which they could hear, we have the Word of God which we can hear in this book. But there are also false prophets then and there are false prophets now. Peter warns us to anticipate that thing. Verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. And even though he says that almost in a future sense, it's clear from what he goes on to say that they were already present at the time when he was writing. And this is something that Jesus had warned his disciples as well. There will be false teachers that will arise and that sort of thing. There's a commentator named Richard Balkum, and he points out that one of the consistent characteristics of false prophets in the Old Testament is that they promise peace when God threatens judgment. So God threatens judgment. He says, I'm going to send judgment on you because you refuse to repent. And what the false prophets do is they say, no, 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 God's not going to judge. He's not going to cast you out of Jerusalem. He's not going to allow the temple to be destroyed, that sort of thing. And so there were false prophets who essentially said, there's nothing to worry about. Don't worry. Peace, peace, they said. God's not going to allow anything bad to happen to His chosen people. This will all be over in a jiffy. It'll just sort of disappear. But it was the genuine prophets sent from God, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth, who said no. In fact, what is happening right now is the outpouring of God's judgment that He promised, that He threatened, that He said would happen. God is refining His people in the fires of affliction. He's going to continue to do this until the impurities of idolatry and injustice are removed from among us. And so it was the false prophets who promised peace and who said, don't worry about it. It was the authentic prophets who lovingly warned of judgment and said, we have to repent. We have to turn away from these idols. We have to turn away from the unjust ways that we have treated one another, from the the murder and the, the abuse, and from the, um, the, the slandering, and from the swindling that we have done, we have to turn back to God's Word. And the same was true in Peter's day and in our day as well. There is genuine comfort to be found in the promises of God. Um, but God also frequently uses warnings of judgment as a means to call us to repentance 
and to hold us firmly in His grasp. When God warns us, it's like He's putting up guardrails to say, don't go past this point because there's danger on that side. And I love you too much not to tell you about that danger. And so as one who is, stands in the place of a teacher who is whether a, a genuine teacher or a false teacher, I have that same task. Every pastor, every preacher, every teacher has that same task. And there are false teachers who refuse to be faithful to those warnings of judgment. They fail to call people to genuine repentance, which is incredibly dangerous. It would be like going to the doctor and having a deadly disease, but the doctor refusing to tell you because they don't want to upset you, because they don't want to tell you something that you don't want to hear because they don't want to hurt your feelings. It might seem loving, but it's not. Withholding the diagnosis and the treatment leads to death while giving a false assurance of life. It's, it's fine. It's okay. It's no big deal. The same is true of false teachers. They are withholding the diagnosis of sin, and they are therefore withholding the remedy of faith and repentance. And Peter says that they're leading people into destruction. And so I want to show you two features of false teaching because I think one of the temptations that we might have when we think about false teaching is we think of it purely as this, this mental cognitive exercise. And it's, it's way, way deeper than that, as it almost always is. So, so two features of false teaching, and this I hope will help us to look out for it in our day as well. The first thing is that false teaching leads us to deny the whole truth. False teaching leads us to deny the whole truth. Now, I've chosen my words carefully there. I did not say that false teaching denies all the truth, but that it denies part of the whole truth. Uh, false, false teachers may profess many things that are true while denying some part of the whole truth. But what, what Peter has to say to us is that a partial denial of the whole truth can have devastating consequences. Notice how he puts it in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and denying the master who, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter wants to make it very clear that false teaching is dangerous. He uses the word destructive or destruction three times in these three verses. And the word that he uses there for destructive or destruction, it's a word that specifically the New Testament uses to refer to destruction on the day of judgment. So he's not just saying that false teaching can, can destroy churches or destroy the lives of individuals in the present, although that is certainly true. He's making a longer-term point. He's saying that false teaching leads to hell. That's his point when he calls these destructive heresies, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. He's saying that this, this false teaching leads to hell. It leads to judgment and condemnation on the final day. It leads people to deny the master who, who bought them which is to say, when we wander off into false teaching, we're wandering away from Jesus. 
We're turning our back on the one who shed his blood to bring us to God. Now, the false teachers to whom Peter was referring were denying specifically that Christ would return and that He would judge the living and the dead. But Peter words it strongly. He, he doesn't just say that they were denying some truths about Jesus. He says they were denying Jesus Himself. And think about why it was so important to put it in those terms. These people were not claiming to promote some entirely new religion. It's not like they came in and they said, hey, there's this other God out there that y'all have never heard about and we want to tell you about Him. No, they're, they're coming in and they're claiming the name of Christ. They profess that He is our Master. They even profess that they've been redeemed, that they've been bought by Him. I'm, I'm sure that they probably spoke of the cross, that they spoke of the resurrection. In fact, can't you imagine some of these false teachers saying, listen, when Jesus died on the cross, He perfectly, fully, completely endured God's judgment. And so there's, there's no more wrath. He doesn't have any more wrath stored up for the day of judgment. There's not going to be a day of judgment, just grace. That sounds really good, doesn't it? The problem is it's so close to being right, but it's, it's off. And sometimes being just slightly off can be arguably more dangerous than being way off. What these false teachers fail to say is that God's judgment and wrath have been satisfied against the sins of those who are in Christ. If I'm in Christ, it's, it's impossible for God to have any more judgment or wrath stored up for me because if I'm in Christ, then I've been crucified with Christ, and He's already poured out His wrath on me, and there's no double jeopardy in God's perfect justice. But what if I'm not in Christ? John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So if, if you trust in Jesus, you've already moved from death to life. There is no more wrath for you, only grace. That's true. But that grace must bear the fruit of repentance and holiness. The rest of the verse, John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the problem is not that there, just that there's wrath stored up on the day of judgment. The problem is that there are people right now who are still under God's wrath. They've never been removed from it. And one day it's going to come on them in fullness. So the first feature of false teaching is that it's a partial denial of the whole truth. That there is something that they are denying, some aspect of the whole counsel of God's Word that they take out, that they sort of carve it out and they say, no, we don't believe this part. And Peter says that it leads to destructive consequences. The second thing I want you to see about false teaching is that it leads us away from godliness. False teaching leads us away from godliness. And this is so important. This is why I say that false teaching is not just about doctrinal error. It's also about sinful practices. Or to put it another way, any teaching that promotes or tolerates known unrepentant sin is contrary to the whole truth of God's Word. Peter says in verse 2, "...and many will follow their sensuality." So he says in verse 1, they deny the master who bought them. And then in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. And the word sensuality there most often refers to 
sexual sin, but it's broader than that. The point is that these people have no self-control and they don't want to have any self-control. They just want to do what's going to feel good. They, they want to satisfy their senses, which can be with sexual sin or it can be excessive eating or drinking or anger or even greed. He adds in verse 3, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So they're not looking out for you. They're not trying to help you. They're, they're looking out for themselves. They're exploiting you with false words. They're telling you what you want to hear because they are trying to get what they want, what will make them feel good. What's not clear is whether they promoted sensuality because they denied the future judgment or whether they denied future judgment in order to justify their own sinful desires. Either way, the point is that sinful beliefs and sinful practices go hand in hand. And if someone is perfectly correct, which I don't think is, is possible this side of heaven, that one person could be right on every single thing, but... Theoretically, if someone was perfectly correct on every mental agreeing with every single doctrine, and yet they were living in such a way that was contrary to that, that is just as much false teaching as someone who denied some facet of Christian belief. So there are some who confess all the right things when it comes to the most central tenets of the faith. They may even be more doctrinally faithful than these false teachers. It's possible that someone could be more doctrinally sound than these false teachers that Peter was dealing with in 2 Peter. And yet, they advocate for practices that are contrary to the gospel. They say, hey, here are all the right things to believe, but you know, live how you want, or don't worry about this particular sin, or in fact, they, they, they may justify some particular sin. Peter says, this is just as destructive, to use his word. It's just as destructive to deny a central Christian practice as it is to deny some central Christian belief. Peter said back in chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So those whom God has called to eternal life, He has called also to godliness, to holiness. And if our lifestyle is contrary to that holiness, then we are out of sync with God and with the truth of the gospel. There's a really good example of this that's staring us right in the face, and it's Peter himself. In the book of Galatians, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he talks about how he had to confront Peter. He says, I confronted him to his face because Peter had been, he was a, a Jewish Christian, and he had been eating with Gentile Christians. You should go and read Acts 10 sometime and see how reluctant Peter was at the first to associate with Gentiles. And he had to have a vision from God three times before he could get over that. So, so some of those sort of... I mean, there's no other way to put it than, than those racist things that he had been raised up on. It, they, they weren't just stripped out easily. It took three visions from God, and then he still struggled with it later on in life. Because what, what Paul says happened was there were some Jewish Christians who came into town, and Peter suddenly got afraid. 
He was afraid of what they're going to think about me. And so he had been eating with Gentile Christians and then he withdrew from them and he stopped eating with them. Now you could sit there and you could try to try to justify that all day. Say, that's, man, that's, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, you know. He was trying not to offend or upset anybody. Here's what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says it was hypocritical. He says they acted hypocritically. Peter acted hypocritically, and he led other Jewish believers to act hypocritically as well because, in Paul's words, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So here's, here's my point. Peter believed the right things. He believed that in Christ, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are equal, that they're on the same footing. He, he believed that. He had, had seen a vision from God three times that, that showed him that. He had advocated for that at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And yet here you have him. He believes the right thing about that that I need to treat these Gentile Christians as my brothers and sisters in Christ. But then something happens and it causes him to not be in step with the truth of the gospel. That's hypocrisy, right? He, he acted in a way that was contrary to what he knew to be true. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, Peter repented. And he got his practice in line with his beliefs. And now he finds himself in the role of warning these people about that very thing. Of, of he's, he's the one who is combating false teaching. He's the one who's now in, in Paul's shoes of confronting people whose teachings and practices were out of step with the gospel. But there was a time when he was the one who was out of sync with what he professed to believe. And the same is true of all of us at one point, in, one point or another. All of us are, are out of step with what we profess to be true. And this is not just a problem that Christians have. I, I try to point this out sometimes when I'm, when I'm speaking to an unbeliever who, who likes to tell me about the hypocrisy of Christians. I say, you're absolutely right. Christians are hypocrites. All humans are hypocrites. We all have standards that we don't live up to. That's hypocrisy. So we're not unique in that. We, we all do that. But the question is, do we, do we have a desire to, to get what we profess and believe to be true and what we do? Do we have a desire to sync those up so that I believe the truth of the gospel and my conduct is in step with the truth of the gospel? So I want to try to build a bridge, if you will, from Peter's context to ours. And there's a phrase that I think will be helpful for us. Maybe it's a phrase you've heard before. Or maybe it's one you're going to learn for the first time this morning. The phrase is, is easy believism. Easy believism. Um, I want to try to define this. Easy believism is when someone treats salvation as merely a matter of, of doing some kind of external action, like uh, praying a prayer, walking an aisle, raising a hand, that sort of thing. Billy Graham talked about easy believism, and he, he defined it as someone thinking that they can be saved without being changed. Thinking you can be saved without being changed. He said that it is a lie from Satan that, that tells people that they can belong to Christ without giving anything up. The false teachers of Peter's day were telling people in the church, you don't need to worry about any judgment in the future. Just live how you want and try to get the most pleasure out of life. Now, 
let's fast forward from Peter's day to the 1500s. German guy named Martin Luther. He's walking around and he's dealing with this thing that's happening in the Roman Catholic Church where they're saying, buy these indulgences from the church, take mass, pray to the saints, and you won't have to worry about future judgment. You can, you can, here's a get out of hell free card. Do these things, and you don't have to worry about future judgment. And while we think that sounds so foreign, we have lots of people who say almost the exact same thing today, except instead of buying indulgences and taking mass and praying to the saints, it's just repeat after me. Just come down the aisle. Just pray this prayer. Walk this aisle. Raise your hand. I see that hand. That sort of thing. Listen, if that's how you got saved, praise God. But the point is, the end results are the same. If we're telling people, you can escape future judgment by doing this simple external act without actually calling people to count the cost and to repent and to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus, then we are telling people to do something short of what God says we have to do. The end results are the same. They are, in the words of Peter, destructive. They lead people to hell while assuring them that they're going to heaven. Now you say, Matt, what's wrong with trying to make the gospel easy to understand? That's not what I'm arguing against. I'm not saying that we have to make the gospel so complicated that only the most highly educated person can, can grasp it. Easy believism is when we present the gospel in such a way that we strip it of the call to repentance. It's when we don't urge people, in the words of John the Baptist, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In fact, one of the, one of the guys who, who founded this way of thinking, a guy named Lewis Perry Schaefer, he accused John the Baptist of works righteousness because John the Baptist had the audacity to say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I want to say, brother, Jesus said the same thing. <laughs> Repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. So proclaiming the whole truth means inviting people not just to pray a prayer or walk an aisle, but to deny themselves and take up their cross and to follow Jesus, to surrender their life to Him as Master and Lord. And to quote the first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So here's what I want to say, and, and I, I, thought, I thought long and hard about this today, and, and tonight in our small groups, Lord willing, we're going to discuss this some more. So I'm going to kind of throw this out there, and you think about it, and then we'll talk about it some more tonight. But I fear that there are many people today who are in danger of putting so much emphasis on grace that they neglect the fruits of grace. They say, God's just going to forgive. He's going to just wipe it all clean without actually calling people to turn away from sin and to follow Him, without calling people to what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit or evidence of grace, things like godliness and holiness and virtue and repentance and self-control and love. Not that we do those things so that we can earn God's grace, but that if we have received God's grace, it must manifest itself in those ways. And so we, we treat God's mercy as a license just to go on sinning. 
We give more weight to happiness than to holiness. We, we say, well, this, this feels satisfying. This feels good. God wants me to be happy, right? So it must be right without stopping to say, wait a minute, is this in step with the truth of the gospel or not? And so it has millions of practical ramifications in our life. One of the, one that I, one of the ones that I see sometimes in, in relationships is when someone sins against someone else, when there is a, a genuine offense, a sin that has been committed, instead of pursuing biblical forgiveness, which requires repentance and restoration. Think about, think about Zacchaeus, right? What does he do? He doesn't just say, sorry. What does he do? He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to make it right. That's how I'm going to demonstrate my repentance. I'm going to go to the people that I have fraud, uh, defrauded and I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to go make it right and that's how I'm going to demonstrate my repentance. So we have cheapened forgiveness. We've said, we just made forgiveness be like, mm, sorry, and then you're supposed to just, I can then demand cheap forgiveness from you where you, you're just supposed to ignore the fact that I wronged you, that I sinned against you. We teach our five and three-year-old to do better than that. We teach them that's not okay. When you wrong somebody else, you just go, sorry. You've got to go to them and you've got to, to mean it. You've got to say, I'm sorry that I did that. How can I make it right? And how can I work not to do that to you again? So there are, we, could, we could go on and on about all the, the ways that this has filtered, not just into our minds, but into our actions. But of course, easy believism is not the only kind of false teaching around today, but it's one of the most prominent, especially in the so-called Bible Belt. But there's a question that, that I want us to wrestle with over the next few weeks, because we're going to have some opportunities as we go through chapter 2 to think about different kinds of false teaching. The, the question that I want us to wrestle with is this. How do we balance being on alert against false teaching without becoming cynical or, or sort of feeling superior to others because we think that we have more discernment than they do? So in First in Peter, Peter dealt with the fact that Christians are going to have to expect persecution. They're going to have to expect hardship. But he, he phrased it in such a way that he said, don't expect it around every corner so that, you know, if somebody doesn't say hey to you, you're like, oh, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> or, you know, if you go to, to Starbucks and they, they give you a red cup instead of one with Jesus on it, you're like, oh, this is persecution, right? So he's saying we got to have some balance here where we, we have to be on the alert, the alert for, for genuine hardship. It's going to happen, but we also don't need to just elevate every simple, small slight to the level of persecution. Same thing in 2 Peter when he's talking about false teaching. We have to be on the alert for false teaching. We have to be on guard for it. We have to be watching for it. But we don't need to just become like the truth police where we, we go to church every week and we sit there and we say, okay, well, Matt misspoke when he said that. And he, he, he said 2 John, but that's actually in 3 John and, you know, this and that. And we kind of become like so discerning that we, we, we've become ungracious. So the truth of the matter is, there are some Christians who are too gullible. They fall for false teaching way too easily. If there's a guy who can, can talk smoothly enough and he seems respectable enough, they'll, they'll fall for it. On the other hand, it's also true that there are some Christians who are too cynical and ungracious. They, they treat every disagreement, 
no matter how minor, as an abomination. So that if you disagree with me on anything, then anathema, you know, you are a heretic. Get out of here, you're not even a Christian. And so in their attempts to maintain purity of doctrine, they become quarrelsome. They elevate secondary things and make them primary. And in their attempts to maintain purity of lifestyle, they become like Pharisees and they have all these extra biblical requirements that they, they say, you have to meet these extra standards that I've come up with. And if you don't, then I'm better than you. And I can feel superior to you because you don't meet the standards of my conscience. So how do we avoid those extremes of being, on the one hand, too gullible, or on the other hand, too ungracious? It seems to me one way we can do that is by checking our motives. I want you to notice what Peter says at the end of verse 2 when he says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. That is one of those clauses in God's Word that ought to stop us in our tracks. Because what it says to us is that the way I speak and the way I live and the way you speak and the way you live is going to affect the way some people think about God. When followers of Christ give in to false teaching whether it is in truth or in practice, it results in the way of truth being blasphemed. It harms the witness of the church. It hinders our ability to share the gospel with the world around us. But here's the thing. Being quarrelsome, being ungracious, hinders our witness just as much as hypocrisy. If there's a follower of Christ who, you know, they, they, they claim the name of Christ and they always talk about going to church and that sort of thing in their workplace, but then they're living in a way that's out of step with the truth of the gospel. Unbelievers see that. They smell hypocrisy from a mile away. It's like sharks with blood. They, they see it, and it leads to the way of truth being blasphemed. But on the other end of that spectrum... If a Christian is going around and they're just constantly so, you know, holier than thou and, well, you know, this is wrong and that's wrong and I'm better than you, that is just as damaging to our witness as someone who is living in a way that is, is too lawless and too loose with holiness. Both of those things are out of step with the truth of the gospel. So our motive has to be not... I just want to win arguments. I just want to feel superior to other people. I can remember, I, I grew up, you know, in a, in a situation where I look back on the way I was raised, and it was legalistic in a lot of ways. It was, if you do these things or don't do these things, you're a good person. And so I can remember being in high school and thinking, well, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't listen to, you know, music with cuss words in it. I'm, I'm better than these people. I genuinely thought that. I was a Pharisee. So our motive can't be that, that I just want to feel better. I want to feel superior to other people. It has to be, I don't want to deny the master who bought me. And I don't want the way of truth to be blasphemed because of my lifestyle or because of my attitude. 
If you're in Christ, you are in a lifelong process of being sanctified. So I don't want you to hear me saying that you've got to have this all figured out. The question is not, are you perfectly pristine in every area of doctrine and practice? Instead, I want to give you two more pointed questions to ask yourself. And these are questions that we're going to have to wrestle with. And so here they are. Am I knowingly denying any part of the whole truth of God's Word? So is there something, some truth of God's Word that is clear, and I know it's there, but I just say, I don't believe that? That's the first question. And second, am I knowingly living out of step with that truth? Is there any area of my life in which I know that this is the right thing to do or that it's right not to do this and I'm living out of step with what I know and profess to be true? Those are questions that we have to deal with um, ourselves in our own hearts and lives. And where I want you to start is, is not so much with, you know, what about the things that I'm unaware of, but the things that I'm aware of. Because I guarantee you, if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us can sit here right now and think about some areas in my life where I'm, I'm not living in step with the truth. Lord willing, we're going to continue returning to those questions over the next several weeks. I just want to encourage you to evaluate yourself honestly. Uh, ask the Spirit of God to shine the light of God's Word into every corner of your life. And I also want to, to say, if, if, if there's anyone listening to my voice, whether it's in this room or whether it's online uh, somewhere, um, if, if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, um, I don't want, again, when we talk about easy believism, I don't want to give the impression that, um, that, that following Christ is, is impossible. It is impossible on your own. But Jesus said what's impossible with man is possible with God. And that's the point. Only God can do it. Um, but I don't, want to, um, I don't want to be like a false prophet, a false teacher who says, don't worry about it. I want to be like the faithful doctor who says, here's the disease. The disease is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the prognosis. The wages of sin is death. Here's the remedy. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He gives that freely. It's not cheap, but it's free. Think about that for a little bit. It's, it's, not, it's not that I just do some outward action and He's then required to show me grace, but that it's, if I genuinely come to Him in faith, He won't turn me away. There was a, a bishop in the uh, 1800s named J.C. Ryle. He says, Never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner. Ignorance of sin is invariably attended by a neglect of Christ. We're going to sing a, a hymn of invitation. This is an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word. So let's pray together. Lord, we pray, I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us to feel the disease of our own soul, 
so that we would value the gospel medicine. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that we are lost and ruined sinners apart from Christ so that we may see the beauty of Christ and in Christ. And Lord, that there would be no one within the sound of my voice who would be ignorant of their sin and thus would neglect Christ. But Lord, I pray that you would bring us low, that you would humble us under your word. Lord, that none of us would be looking around, figuratively speaking, to anyone else and thinking of their error or of their sin or of their hypocrisy, but that we would be thinking only of our own and that we would then turn our eyes to Jesus, that we would look to Him, to His glory and His truth and His grace. Lord, we thank You that You have at great cost purchased free grace for us, and yet it is reserved for those who will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, and come to you in faith. So Lord, would you do that now? Spirit of God, would you move in our hearts to draw us to Jesus, to help us to run to Him? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.